Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the first Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. I'm Brooke McCallum, and I will be your host tonight. We have our two stars. We have Sophie Fott and Dan Wakefield. Sophie has performed in venues across the country and world, including jazz at Lincoln Center in New York City and the North Sea Jazz Festival in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. She's headlined at the nationally recognized Portland Jazz Festival, leading her own group in original compositions and jazz standards. She's toured as a member of the Nicholas Payton Jazz Quintet and has also appeared with Jimmy Heath, Slide Hampton, The Temptations, The Four Tops, and Dick Oates. She currently leads her own jazz trio and performs periodically in Bloomington and Indianapolis. Check Facebook for updated performance schedules. Day One was the group's first album. The group's second release, Three Muses, is a collection of original music inspired by the paintings of local artist Stephen Sickles. And Dan is a journalist, novelist, and screenwriter whose best-selling novels include Going All the Way and Starting Over. His memoirs include New York in the 50s, which was made a documentary film, and Returning a Spiritual Journey, which Bill Moyers called one of the most important memoirs of the spirit I've ever read. He created the NBC primetime series, James at 15, and wrote the screenplay of his novel, Going All the Way, starring Ben Affleck. Tonight's episode is called Starting Out and is reflective of the two artists' path through their artistic journey. So we're going to go ahead and start with Sophie. Sophie, what do you have? I know you talked about a Casio keyboard. Right. Okay. So where does a person's journey begin? I think everybody has a memory from from early, early on where uh, they realized that they would like to pursue um, the artist's path. And for me, that was that happened when I was maybe three or four. Um, we got a Casio keyboard for Christmas and we had unwrapped all the christmas presents and my dad was making pancakes pancake breakfast on christmas morning in the kitchen and you know the keyboard was just one of many things that i got didn't even really think about it just like okay uh you know whatever but i hear uh from the kitchen i hear this beautiful music just mind-blowingly good music right and i don't know uh if anyone else is familiar with the whole casio keyboard thing i know this is very 90s but (laughs) it has a little button on it that says demo and when you press that button it plays all the effects that the keyboard can do and they're kind of like um intertwined into this beautiful song which you know a four-year-old would think was really cool so i go into the kitchen and i see my dad jamming out on the keyboard and playing this amazing music and in actuality, he did not know how to play the keyboard at all. He had just pressed the demo button. But he was really <laughs> hamming it up, and it was very believable. And, I mean, he revealed to me, you know, after just a minute or two, you know, I, I don't really know how to play the keyboard. <laughs> but for some reason, just seeing a human being connected with the act of music making was what it took for me to realize that people make music. And then my next thought was, I want to be one of those people. Right. So what was your step after that? So you had this Casio keyboard. How did you go into other instruments or from there? Did you take lessons? Well, being really young, I think my parents 
you know, just took this as another one of the many uh, aspirations that I expressed that was going to come to nothing. I wanted to be a marine biologist and I'd never even seen the ocean, for example. <laughs> so so they just kind of let me explore. Uh, we had that keyboard and they, you know, gave me the tools and gave me the space and they watched to see what I would do. And I was very studious with it and taught myself how to read music with the help of a book that I had and, you know, played it every day. Um, and I remember I was told if I wanted to have lessons, I had to practice every day. So I, I did. And the first song that I learned by heart was Willie Nelson's On the Road Again. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because I never listened to country music and my parents didn't either. Right. But my mom came home from work one day and my dad's like, look what Sophie can do. She can play On the Road Again. <laughs> so they they realized pretty quickly that I was into it and they got me lessons with um, the church pianist. And so she was my first teacher. And from there, you know, it was just a matter of applying myself and practicing and you know, there was nowhere to go but up. So the next big step, I take it, was in uh, middle school in Franklin Township? Yeah, so I was just a just another kid going to school. Um, playing the piano was an extracurricular thing. And then in middle school, we actually had a school band. And so that was my opportunity to, to get to explore music even further. And they they would do this thing at the end of fifth grade where they brought essentially a an instrument petting zoo and they would let you play all of them and then kind of just pick whichever one seemed to work well for you and um you know in retrospect i think that's an, a really intelligent decision because there are some kids who just know i want to play the drums or i want to play the guitar but there's a lot of people that aren't really sure and i truly believe that there is a certain instrument that is meant for each person. And if you talk to musicians and start to hear their life stories, you'll find out that that seems to be the case. They might have started on one thing, but they always find their way to the right one. So anyway, we went all around the room. I got to play the trumpet. Absolutely not. Got to play the <laughs> trombone. No, no, no. <laughs> and then we got to the saxophone, and it just resonated. It just worked. Um, so they saw that I could play, you know, an instrument that had a read and they said, okay, your girl would put you on clarinet, clarinet. <laughs> I just played the saxophone, you know? So, so they, I said, no, I don't want to play the clarinet. I want to play the saxophone. Well, we really need you on clarinet. It's like, I want to play the saxophone. Okay, fine. So then they, you know, there's different size saxophones. There's a little one, the alto, and then there's a big one, the tenor. And so they said, well, we'll put you on alto. We start all the girls on alto. I was like, I just really want to play the tenor. And I, I wouldn't back down. I wouldn't take no for an answer. And I honestly don't know why. Yeah, that's odd for a middle schooler to be that determined about that, especially when you have authority figures, you know, telling you no. I think that's awesome. Well, I've always been very opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> and for some, I think it goes back to what I was talking about. There was just something inside of me that knew the tenor saxophone wow. was the instrument I was supposed to play. And for a while, they did switch me to alto, and and they said that I didn't have the breath support to play tenor. And I said, well, what do I have to do? And they said, run a mile every day, probably as a joke. And I was like, okay. And I did it. And I am not somebody oh who enjoys God. running miles, <laughs> let me tell you. But I just, I wanted to get back to that tenor. And, um, I mean, there's other more, like, technical things I could say about that just as far as you know, having perfect pitch and it being tuned to B flat, et cetera, et cetera. That probably doesn't make any sense. But regardless, the tenor was the instrument for me. And um, and we found each other and been together ever since. 
And then the band director uh, gave you the name of somebody who became very important for you, Harry Miedema. Yes. So, um, you know, it wasn't too long uh, before I had kind of distinguished myself um, amongst my peers as someone who was really serious about music. And so he just happened to have contact information for essentially the greatest, the best saxophone teacher in Indianapolis. And Harry, Harry Miedema was his name. And he became my teacher, which sort of against all odds, really, because he he was the director of jazz studies at University of Indianapolis, very busy man with lots of people who were studying saxophone in college. But um, for some reason, he he took this phone call from my mother, you know, about her sixth grader daughter who really wanted to learn to play the saxophone better. And he said, "Okay, we'll give it a try. And I actually asked him about it later on, and I said, why did you decide to take me as a student? And he said that he just had learned that you had to keep an open mind and give everybody a chance and see what they wanted to do. And I think very early on, he saw that I was somebody that really, really wanted to play music and was really really willing to work hard. And um, he said something to my mother, which he did not say to me at the time, good move Harry wise man <laughs> but he, he said that that I was sort of the student that he'd been waiting for you know I was wow. the student that had the talent and had the will to practice and Harry has an amazing pedigree he was one of David Baker's first private students before David even taught at Indiana University this was back when he was teaching oh, up cool. here at what is now called University of Indianapolis he um, toured with many famous Motown groups over the years and was the uh, music director for the OJs as well as toured with them for almost 30 years. He's played with The Temptations, The Four Tops, great songwriter, arranger, and he's also, uh, like I said, a great teacher. There are some people who I think that is their specific talent, and Harry was one of them, so I feel very, very blessed to have had him as a teacher and cherish the many years that I got to spend learning with him. Oh, and absolutely. Remind you of a song of that era. Well, yes. So Harry and I um, did a concert together at University of Indianapolis, and we played this song, There Will Never Be Another You, together, just the two of us on stage, and it will always, always make me think of him.
love this story. I think it's one of the most dramatic uh, discovery stories of when you were discovery, discovered by your next great musical influence. Yeah, so I was a freshman at Indiana <laughs> University, and from time to time they would have um, like famous musicians come through and do clinics at the school. And so the way a clinic works is usually a student group will play a couple of tunes and then that person will kind of critique, you know, what they did and give them feedback. And the idea is that all of the students will benefit from hearing that feedback. So, so everybody in the school, all the teachers and all the students, were, was in the audience. And my group was selected to perform for this guy, Nicholas Payton, who is a Grammy Award-winning trumpet player, well-known throughout the jazz world, very, very influential musician, quite intimidating, I might add. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember seeing him standing there with his arms crossed, you know, over his chest mm -hmm. and, like, you know, just kind of giving us the look. And I was like, oh, boy, <laughs> this is scary. Yeah. Because up to that point, I'd only ever played for friends and family and people who were very, very supportive. And, you know, when you go to college, that's when you start to expose yourself to real critique and, you know, really put your work out there and see what are people going to say. So um, so we played our song and then he was he was standing in the back of the room behind everybody. And I remember he just kind of he he asked me, I think he pointed at me specifically, he said, what's your name? And I said what it was. And then he said, do you go to school here? And I said, yeah. And he said, not for long. Oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> and everybody in the room knew what that meant. And it was just a really dramatic moment um, because – yeah, I mean, to be called out in front of everyone that you know, it's intense. But anyway, I figured, well, that, that was cool. That was just for effect, and, you know, that's the end of that. But after the, the clinic was over, he approached me, and he asked me for my business card. And I was like, I don't have a business card. I was 18 years yeah. old, you know. <clears throat> so I tore a piece of paper out of my notebook and wrote my <laughs> name and my number on it, expecting, again, nothing to come up come from it. But I, I think it was only a week later that I did hear from him, and – he wanted me to play some dates with his with his group and essentially go on tour. And that was the turning point for me because when when you 
you know, when you start out, you have no connections. And then all of a sudden, once you are connected to somebody whose opinion is valued in general by the world that you're entering into, that changes who you are to everyone you meet. So no longer was I Sophie Fott from Indiana. I was Sophie Fott from Indiana, who will be touring with Nicholas Payton. And, you know, that's something that you put on your resume and you keep it forever, you know. Yeah. And so that was a pretty big deal. And that inspired your next song. Right. So, um... So this next song is a blues uh, by Hank Mobley. It's called Dig Dis, and I think it's a really good one to play because it, um, so the next song I'm going to play is um, Dig Dis by Hank Mobley, and I think it's um, it's a great song because it's emblematic both of the influence that Hank Mobley, who was one of my main uh, musical uh, idols, <laughs> the influence that he had on me, as well as kind of paying tribute to Nicholas, who is a musician who certainly understands the blues very well, comes from New Orleans where there's a really strong tradition of playing the blues, and so um, it kind of brings both of those influences together. Perfect.
you. So Nick Payton reached out to you. Right. So um, so he did. He called me and um, asked me to play a couple of gigs with him in Minneapolis. You know, I understood it as sort of a trial. And I didn't have very long to prepare, from what I recall, just a week and a half or something like that. Oh, wow. Really not very much time at all. I remember I got the music in the mail and only had a couple of days. And so... A test. It, <laughs> uh, it was, you know, one of the most challenging and exciting um, musical experiences that I had had, certainly up to that point and even maybe till today. And um, luckily, you know, I had had some great teachers, Harry, also David Baker, um, Claude Sifferlin. I'd had people who had really helped me um, lay a strong foundation so that when my chance came along, I was I was ready. I was ready and prepared and I had the strength in me to to find a way to to make some good music, which is what we're here for. So, um, so yeah, I flew out to Minneapolis, and I guess the story is sort of to be continued. We'll tell you more next time. On our next episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so was it hard for you growing up without female jazz musicians to look up to, or did you have any specific jazz musicians you did look up to? Well, um, jazz is an oral tradition, and there is sort of this – it's understood that people will find players who they idolize and sort of um, absorb their language in the way that they play music. And for me, I never felt a need to have a female role model because what I was looking for was a sound, not a body, if that makes yeah. any sense. So um, I certainly did have people who I looked up to as musicians and whose music I adored. Um, I guess the challenge for me was that most of them, if, if not all of them, were dead. So yeah. <laughs> I would never have the chance to meet any of my idols. So gender doesn't matter regardless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, and that, it is a question that I get asked a lot. And actually now on the flip side, people tell me, oh, you know, you could be inspiring so many women, young women to play jazz. But I just hope that people hear my sound and like it and want to play music. And I don't care if they're women, men, children, you know, whatever. It's it's about the sound. That's what it's about. Oh, very neat. You're a purist. Exactly. <laughs> great. And that inspired your final song? Right. So this is self-explanatory, in your own sweet way. That's the way that each of us tries to make music, I think. And at least that's music at its best when it's sincere and personal to you. Thank you. 
So thank you so much for giving us your story on starting out. And we're going to go ahead and switch it over to Dan's experience starting out. So Dan, how did your story start out with literature and writing versus playing an instrument? That was very clear to me. In the first grade, I felt my fate was determined. Because in the first grade, basically, you're offered pictures, numbers, and words and music and I love the uh, pictures and I love the music but I couldn't do them the numbers were a complete blank when they introduced math and algebra it was like a big curtain came down in my mind <laughs> but words and books it just seemed natural by the way my music thing they in the first grade they organized a rhythm band and it was clear that the people who had any musical talent got to play the triangle and the bells. And those with no musical talent, like me, were given the rhythm stick. <laughs> and all you do is just beat these two sticks on the floor. So <laughs> I, I knew that was that. not for me. But I, I loved books. I loved everything I read. I remember first reading, just being knocked out by a book called The Bears of Blue River about two pioneer boys in Indiana and them finding arrowheads. And I went out to in my backyard at 61st and Winthrop and every other rock I was sure was an arrowhead. <laughs> so I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about everything. And the great thing was I was very lucky that every school I went to, including my grade school, had its own newspaper. Wow. School number 80 and Broad Ripple had a paper called The Rippler. 
and that was really great. And then basketball got kind of mixed up with words and stories because I just became totally hooked on basketball, the idea of it. I loved to play it at a backboard in my backyard. I was a great shot, but I couldn't run fast enough. So that uh, ruined me for the actually doing it. But uh, I had a good friend at the end of the block, Gene Newdigate, and he was basketball crazy too. And we used to walk across the Monon tracks and go to the Broadripple High School gym, and we watched any kind of basketball. We would get there at five o'clock. We'd watch the grade school game, the high school game, the junior varsity game, the varsity game. We would just sit there forever. We even watched games of men playing for companies and we used to kind of make fun of them and we had a, we'd make up cheers for them and so on. But then I started reading the sports pages religiously, sports pages of the news and the star. And then uh, I read a, a book, a, an author who wrote a lot of books for boys named John R. Tunis, and they were all about sports, and I just loved them. And John R. Tunis was one of my great influences, and I loved him. and. Uh, read him, read all his books. But I also, reading these sports pages, I found that one of the columnists, the editor of the news, William F. Fox Jr., had a column on basketball, and people sent in uh, ideas, predictions. They even sent in little poems. So I wrote a poem when I was nine years old predicting the outcome of the state tournament. And my poem was, you'll see that the boys who in glory will reign will be those old archers south side of Fort Wayne. <laughs> well, that team got beat in the first game of the sectionals. So William F. Fox printed my poem, but he prefaced it with this. He said that south side of Fort Wayne was beaten the first game of the sectionals. Then he said, Think how Dan Wakefield felt after struggling to write these lines. And then he quoted my poems. But I was not made unhappy by that. I was elated. My name was in print. Uh, my words were in the Indianapolis News. So I took that as, as a great thing. And uh, in fact, that was, that was my moment of thinking that things are gonna go right, I was gonna be a writer, I'd already been published at age nine, and that be became the theme song of that time of my life, Don't Fence Me In. <laughs> Thank you. 
So Dan, in talking about those early years, it's clear that you were a passionate young man and you would become very, very much, um, I don't want to say obsessed, but certainly very, very passionate about your interests. And I'm curious if uh, you think there might be some connection between that passionate nature and your future life as a writer. Does being an artist or a writer require you to be someone who can totally engulf themselves in an interest and then move on to something else? Oh, I think I think it is. I think it's part of the requirement because when you're writing a book, that you you really have to immerse yourself in it. You that that has to be the only thing you're thinking about, and uh, so I think that the passion is is really crucial through it. Um, and your passion went from writing your first poem at age nine to your first novel. Yes. Well, I thought it was a novel. It was only 10 pages, so it really <laughs> didn't require, but it was, uh, I, I veered off a little into loving football. Uh, for a while, I wanted to be the football coach of Notre Dame. Oh, wow. I saw the movie Newt Rockney All-American five times, so I could practically memorize it. But uh, the novel was called Lateral Pass, and I was very proud of it because I put a cover on it, and so it was looked like a novel to me. Um, and the greatest thing in grade school, when I, and of course, I was writing all the time, and I did write for the Rippler, but in the eighth grade, I had a terrific teacher, Miss Louise C. Wheeler, and she said that key phrase that was like Nick. Cage for you, she said to me, Dan, you can write. Well, that was like I had been knighted. <laughs> and no, no accident that I later in college drove to California and visited Miss Wheeler in her retirement, and she gave me tea, which I thought was very writerly and English of her. So but, did she, uh, did you let her know how important her words had been to you? And oh, what yes. what was her response? Well, uh, she was, she was happy about it. And she knew how important it was because I went all the way to California <laughs> to see her. And, and yes, and we did correspond for a while. Uh, and she was very happy that instead of going to Broad Ripple, which was a great high school, and most of my grade school friends went there, but I went to Shortridge because I knew that Shortridge was the only school in the country that had a daily newspaper, the Shortridge Daily Echo. I didn't even know at that time that Kurt Vonnegut had written for it 10 years before I did, but I did know that there was, and we were told this, that there was a woman, very adventurous, who went to Shortridge, who uh, was in the literary club, and when she graduated in the 1940s, she and another woman drove to Los Angeles to get into this new business called television, and she became the first writer, the first head writer of the I Love Lucy show. So at Shortridge, we always had models of people who had gone on to write, and that was very important. But most important, Miss Jean Grubb, who was the journalism teacher, she was also the faculty advisor of the Shortridge Daily Echo, and she published my first article, which was a kind of a mood piece about just on the eve of the, the, the basketball tournament. 
and that was very exciting. But most important of all, she made me, she designate, designated me as the Shortridge correspondent in sports for the Indianapolis Star and the Indianapolis News. So that meant that I got to report all the games that we had. And when one of the real sports writers came to our school, if we had an important game, I got to be his assistant and either sit with him at the scorer's table in a basketball game or in a football game, run up and down the sidelines with him uh, as I took down numbers of yardage and gains and losses and all that. And that made me feel very important as I was running up and down the sidelines. But maybe even more important, this first sports writer, Corky Lamb, who was a great sports writer for the news, and he became like a father to me. He was one of the first people who spoke to me as an adult. And he spoke to me about writing. He spoke to me about what his job was really like and, and some of the frustrations of it. And because he spoke to me like that, I was able to speak to him and ask him questions that I would have never asked my father. <laughs> I would have been too terrified. And so he was just a crucial person in my life. And I'll never forget, there's this scene in my mind where I was driving with him. It was in winter. I remember he had on gloves. And he was telling me about how the sports editor was not doing such and such. And I was saying, but I just read a book about what the sports are supposed to do. Isn't he supposed to assign other people uh, to go rather than him coming himself. And I remember Corky slammed the steering wheel with one of his fists. He says, out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was not offended by that. I thought, oh, it meant I had hit the nail on the head. I'd said something important. So uh, that was, well, that led to my later in college being a summer replacement reporter on the Star Sports Desk. And then I got to work with the great Bob Collins, who became sports editor. And he was, again, like a, a father. He was more like an older brother. He was a younger guy. And he gave me books to read. I'll never forget. He gave me a novel by Bud Schulberg, very big at the time, called What Makes Sammy Run, a novel about Hollywood. And he gave me a novel, a uh, historical novel, about the American Revolution uh, by Kenneth Roberts called A Rabble in Arms. And the title came from a British general saying that Washington's army was a rabble in arms flushed with success and ignorance. Um, so that was Heming, uh, that, that Bob Collins and Corky Lamb were two really crucial people in helping my writing and, and my life. And, um, so Dan, it, it sounds like these were not just mentors, but friends for you. They were, they were, for, they were like family really. And, uh, and mentors in the fullest sense of the word. And, um. Do you think that's a key part of the mentoring relationship to have the ability to also reach outside of the profession and just 
connect as humans, well, be friends. Well, I tell you, the, the award I am proudest of is that when I taught at Florida International University in the graduate writing program, I received the first faculty mentorship award. And it was given because students from all of my different classes from 95 to 2007 uh, wrote in things about how I had helped them. And that was just tremendously gratifying. Um, and that reminded me of this song, All the Things You Are. of my life was changed again by reading an essay by Mark Van Doren. It was an essay called Education by Books in which he proposed that a person could get a great education simply by reading the great books of the world. There was something about this essay, the way he wrote, the way he expressed it that really Move me, and at the bottom, in the identification, said Mark Van Doren is a Pulitzer Prize poet who teaches at Columbia, and it was sort of like his name 
came up off the page. It was like a message. That's where I want to go. And I was able to take his class. And going to Columbia was just an amazing experience. And being in New York in the 50s. And uh, I remember one of my classmates was Rabbi Harold Kushner, who later wrote uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I didn't know him at Columbia because I was writing for the Columbia Daily Spectator, and he was writing for uh, the Columbia Jester, the humor magazine. But he gave a great talk at our 35th reunion, and he, he described it perfectly. He said, Columbia in our day was made up of two kinds of young men. There were young Jewish intellectuals from Brooklyn and the Bronx who wanted to become mainstream Americans. And there were who, uh, high school hotshots from the Midwest who wanted to become New York Jewish intellectuals. <laughs> and everybody got their wish. But uh, at Columbia, having these great professors was terrific, and especially Van Doren, who's from Illinois, and he had a Midwestern accent, so I, would, I felt at home with him. And uh, after I got out of, after working on the Daily Spectator, uh, I graduated, and I suddenly had a hard time finding a job, but I was able to get a job on a weekly paper in Princeton, New Jersey, the Princeton Packet. And it so happened, uh, as many people will know, that Albert Einstein lived there. I lived on a rooming house in a rooming house on Mercer Street, and I used to see Einstein going to work every day. And uh, he happened, he died that summer of 1955. So I wrote the obituary of Albert Einstein for the Princeton Packet, New Jersey's oldest weekly. But also, more significant to me, that my favorite columnist, Murray Kempton of the New York Post, happened to live in New Jersey, and he happened to have his first book published while I was there writing for the paper, and I reviewed the book, and I really gave it my all because I, I loved the book. I wanted to do it right. I sat up nights getting this review right, and after it came out in my rooming house, the woman who ran the rooming house called me and said, Mr. Wakefield, you have a call. And I got to the phone, and it was Murray Kempton. He said, uh, you really dug the book. Uh, thank you. And come over and have a beer sometime. I live in Princeton, too. And I said, well, uh, okay, how about this afternoon? <laughs> so I went right over, and he indeed became another great mentor and that's later that summer of 55, I began reading in all the New York papers, any paper, that there was this big murder trial coming up in Mississippi. A 14-year-old boy from Chicago, a black boy named Emmett Till, had gone to the Mississippi Delta to stay with his grandfather, and he had committed the sin down there in Mississippi of whistling at a white woman. And he was murdered by two white men. And the trial was going to be that September in Sumner, Mississippi. 
And I knew it was the first big racial story after the Supreme Court decision outlawing segregation in the schools. And it was attracting people from around the world. Reporters were going to go, and I thought, oh, I would give anything to go cover this trial, but who was I? Well, I didn't have any. But out of desperation, I called up Murray Kempton. I said, is there any way anybody would send me to Mississippi to cover that trial? And he said, well, the Nation magazine asked me, but I'm doing it for the Post. I'll tell them they should have you do it. I thought, well, fat chance. You know, when I, 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 I worked on the summers for the Indianapolis Star and the Grand Rapids Press, and I'm not working for New Jersey's oldest weekly. That's hardly a qualification, but somehow, whatever he said, I never asked him, but they said, yes, we will send you to Mississippi. And I had to go to the office of the nation. And when they said they would send me to Mississippi, my payment was a round trip bus ticket from New York City to Sumner, Mississippi. And it stopped in every little burg along the way. When I unfolded that bus ticket, it looked like an accordion. And I sat in that bus, I think it was two days and a night, and finally got to Mississippi, which ironically, as you went in the city limits, it said, a good place to raise a boy. Um, but I was, I was there, I got in a rooming house, and I knew that I was somehow, this was it. This was my big chance. And what came to my mind was a quote I had seen by Abraham Lincoln when I was a freshman in college, and this quote had always stuck to me. I knew it, it was a lesson for me, and the quote was, I will study and get ready, and maybe the chance will come. And I knew this is the chance. So we're going to perform our last song entitled My Shining Hour. But first, I would like to introduce the band. We have Joel Tucker on guitar and Nick Tucker on bass, two of Indy's finest musicians. We are so grateful to have them here. Thank you all for coming tonight, and this will be our last song. Thank you. 